0: Alright, so in the early uh, chapters of the book of Acts, something glorious occurred. And what that something is, is the birth of the church. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it. Well, Acts 2, the church was born. Jesus went up. The Spirit of God came down. The word church in the Greek means is the word ekklesia, and the word ekklesia means simply, and I quote, an assembly of called out ones. All right, so what's the church? It's an assembly of called out ones. That's the original meaning in the Greek. What does that mean? That means that the church is not a building, how many times do people, uh, we hear people saying that, I'm going down to the church, as if you know, these four walls are the church. <clears throat> Excuse me, these four walls are not the church. You guys are the church. And so what is the church? It's an assembly of disciples. And so back to Acts, when the early church began um, to grow rapidly there in Jerusalem, and they began to reach their community with this exciting news that Jesus had risen from the dead, you need to know that the Sanhedrin, or the Supreme Court of Israel, took notice. The Sanhedrin, right, they noticed That what had been a relatively small group of apostles or followers of Jesus had now, months later, turned into a mighty army of disciples that was spreading in their own backyard. And when they saw that, you need to know that these guys, the high priests and um, the members of the Sanhedrin became alarmed and they became angry. Why? Because the members of the Sanhedrin vehemently denied that Jesus was alive. And they were mad, but they weren't the only ones who were mad. There was also a young upstart, a prized upstart in Judaism, a young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus And he was mad as well. Saul was so mad that he began to persecute the church with a vengeance. And so if you remember, uh, we did 49 messages straight through the book of Acts. It's all available on podcast. But if you remember, the first thing that Saul did is he gave his, as a leader in Israel, he gave his approval to the execution of a dynamic Christian named Stephen, a leader in the church the Jews took him outside of Jerusalem and they stoned him to death and Saul of Tarsus was there giving approval of that execution and then after that he led a, campa- a campaign of religious terrorism against the christian community luke tells us about it in luke 8:3 It says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. And so Saul was so infuriated at the church in Jerusalem, he became like this wild animal and he was attacking and he was devouring Christians. And even though what he was doing was absolutely terrible, how many of you guys really believe that God is sovereign? Right, do you really believe that? I'm asking you, you can, you can respond. Do you really believe God is sovereign? Right, absolutely, he is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things and evil will not continue on um, indefinitely. No, the Lord's gonna come back, he's gonna fix the mess that we made. By the way, um, while we're on the subject of Christians being persecuted, please pray for the Christians and the churches, the underground churches in Afghanistan because you know that they are right now um, the victims of religious terrorism as um, Islamicists come after them. So pray for them. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And man, um, they're uh, facing this terrible, terrible thing in Afghanistan. But back to the message, even though Saul was doing something terrible, here's what you need to know. Our early church father, one of our early church fathers, Tertullian, around 200 AD, he says something very important, and I quote, he said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What does that mean? That means that when you persecute real Christians, I'm not not talking about fake Christians, I'm saying real Christians. When you persecute real Christians, guess what? They just spread. And as Saul was attacking the church in Jerusalem, guess what, it spread. And the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. It even went all the way up to a place called Damascus, Syria. And when Saul heard that, he got even more angry. And so what did he do? He went to Caiaphas, the high priest, the same guy, right, that rent his robe when Jesus uh, said that he was the son of God, the same man who condemned Jesus to death. This same Caiaphas gave Saul of Tarsus permission to go to Damascus, Syria, uh, Syria, and to arrest and imprison people like you and me. And in Acts chapter nine, And by the way, all Christians should be so thankful for Acts chapter 9. While on the road to Damascus, this proud Pharisee, which we're going to find out in a minute, in Philippians chapter 3, who was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews who outwardly kept the law of Moses flawlessly. While on the road to Damascus, riding on his high horse of self-righteousness, thinking he was doing God a favor by destroying the disciples of Jesus. While on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden, Saul was surrounded by a bright light from heaven. And the next thing you know, he was on the ground. And then he heard these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, who was Saul persecuting? Yeah, the church, Christians. And yet Jesus said, why are you persecuting what? Me. Me, you see how much God loves you? You see how Jesus identifies with you? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Can you imagine the shock, the awe in the heart of Saul of Tarsus, who was convinced, who had convinced himself that all these people are lying and that Jesus is really dead in a tomb somewhere, or that the disciples stole the body, and here he is confronted with the risen, living Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and I would say also the Messiah of the whole world, And so I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, everything changed. The arrogant Israelite found himself groveling in the dirt, blinded by a light from heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. Um, Sometimes God will hurt us in order to help us. And it's not judgment, it's an act of grace. Because if you're all proud and arrogant, well yeah, God may hurt you. It's not a light from Satan, it's a light from God. And all of a sudden he's on his face in the dirt, this proud Pharisee, what is God doing? He's breaking him. And then he heard the words, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are going to do. And so Saul gets up, but he's blind, right? And so his companions had to lead him by hand into the city. Of Damascus. They took him to a man named Judas's house. And uh, while he was there, for three days, Saul of Tarsus, right, he sat in the dark and he prayed to the Lord. And so later, a local Christian named Ananias came and ministered to him. And Saul, because how many of you guys believe miracles happened then and the miracles still happen today? Saul miraculously received his sight, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so the Lord took away his sight, but now the Lord's given it back. Thank God for his mercy. And so he regained his sight and he was baptized as a new believer in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. He got saved either on the road to Damascus or during the three days while he was communing with the Lord. Um, but here's the thing. First he got saved and then he got baptized, okay? And so, I'll talk more about that later in the message, but he came to know Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as you continue to study Acts, here's what you find out. That Saul, that's his Hebrew name, the greatest persecutor of the church, is at some point in Acts, he starts to be referred to as Paul, his Roman name, and he becomes arguably the greatest apostle, the greatest apologist, the greatest defender of the Christian faith. And so Paul had a grace awakening, and it was on the road to Damascus, right, that he was able to discover the difference. Now you gotta hear this right here. It was on the road to Damascus that Saul of Tarsus discovered the difference between works righteousness and faith righteousness. And that leads us to our big idea for the day, and that is that self-righteousness blocks people from knowing Jesus. But faith-righteousness opens the door to a personal relationship with him. One more time. Self-righteousness blocks people from knowing Jesus, but faith-righteousness opens the door to a personal relationship with him, and you're gonna see that big idea being drawn out clearly from the scriptures as we go verse by verse here in a moment, but still some more background. All right, and so he has his grace awakening on the road to Damascus, and then almost 30 years later, um, Paul, finds himself under house arrest in the city of Rome. Okay, someone says, well, how did that happen? Well, the short story is simply this. When Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, turned to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, the Sanhedrin turned away from Saul of Tarsus they began to persecute him. The Supreme Court of Israel, that strong body within Israel, began to falsely accuse Paul, uh, before the Roman authorities of things that he did not do, and so in response, what did Paul do in that Roman environment? He appealed to Caesar, and then the next thing you know, he's on a ship going across the Mediterranean Sea, and the next thing you know, he's chained to a Roman soldier incarcerated in Rome. While there, he writes the four prison epistles. I've already taught you this, but I'll just mention it. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Okay, so what are we doing this morning? We're going through Philippians, his letter to the Church of Philippi. We're halfway through um, that amazing letter. And if you're brand new to Calvary, listen, this is what we do because we really believe that this is the breathed out word of God, right? And so we are in the New Testament. We're in a New Testament letter. And so what does this mean? This means that this letter, along with the whole Bible, is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. So we study the scriptures, we study God's word, and then we go out of here, and in the power of the Spirit, we live it out. That's what we're doing today. And so right now, if you're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, can you say amen? amen? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What in the world does that mean? Well, I got some more uh, splaining to do, kind of like Lucy, right? All right, so during his missionary journeys, Paul, what would he do? He would go to Gentile cities and he would plant churches. Churches like this right here. He would go from Gentile city to Gentile city. He would plant churches. He would raise up leaders, and then he would move on because he was an evangelist. And so here's the sad part. After Paul left town, false teachers would come in to those churches. Certain Jewish men came in and taught false doctrine. They were called the Judaizers. What did they teach? Well, here's a great If you're new to Calvary, this is a great resource. GotQuestions.org, man, they just answer hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions that you have about the Bible and faith and God, et cetera. But I went to them to find out what a Judaizer is so you guys would know. And so a Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to truly be right with God, he must conform to the what? Can you see that? So if you're new to the Bible, that's... um, All those laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Circumcision especially was promoted as necessary for salvation. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ, okay, so they gave mental assent to the fact that Jesus was Messiah, so that was good, but they're teaching false doctrine concerning salvation. So the the doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ and works, or plus works, through the keeping of the law. We can also call these guys legalists, because they were all about keeping in their own power a legal list of religious rules. And so what happened again? They infiltrated the churches that Paul had planted around the Roman Empire, and they taught Gentile believers... That in addition to believing in Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in addition to that faith, you also had to be circumcised to be saved. In other words, these guys would stand before Gentiles and say that they had to become Jewish proselytes in order to be accepted by God. They would literally stand in front of churches like I'm standing in front of you right now. And they would say, yeah, 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 we know. Saul, Paul was here, right? And he he teaches that salvation is a free gift that you receive when you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. But you need to know that's simplistic. You need to know that there's more that you gotta do. If you really wanna be saved, you got to, in addition to your faith, also be saved circumcised, go through this religious ritual. And I can imagine the whole scene. So you have one Judaizer here, and he's laying this legalistic trip on the congregation. You got another Judaizer over here, and he's sharpening his knife, and he's pointing to a back room for all the Gentile men. And he's saying, today's the day of salvation, come on in. And all the Gentile men are swallowing hard and saying, Paul never said anything about this. Now, when Paul heard about all this, do you think he was happy or do you think he was mad? Oh man, was he mad. Do you guys know it's okay to get mad? There's such such a thing called righteous anger. And Saul is infuriated. You say, how angry was he? Read Galatians and you'll find out. In Galatians, Galatians, Paul severely rebukes the Judaizers. I mean, he lays it on them. And Philippians, you can still sense his anger. So again, look at verse one. He gives the theme of the letter, um, rejoice in the Lord, but then he gets down to business here. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. In other words, Philippians, I've already warned you about the false teachers. I've already warned you about these Judaizers, but I need to warn you again. It's no trouble for me, this is what I do, but it's absolutely for your safety. And now look at verse two. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so Paul used three terms to describe one group of people. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. First, he says, look out for the dogs, okay? So don't think about the domesticated animal that's waiting at home for you that you love so much, right? That's not what Paul had in mind here. I want you to think of a pack of vicious, mangy mongrels, Right? wild dogs who snarl and bare their fangs and will attack anything that comes down the street, right? If you're in a third world country and you look down the street, and you see a pack of wild dogs, here's what I know you're not gonna do. You're not gonna say, here, poochie, poochie, poochies, come on, woo, no. You're gonna back away slowly. Paul, under the inspiration of the spirits, telling the Philippians, back away from the dogs. All right, to whom was he referring to by using the term dogs? Well, the legalists who bark their false teachings and tear at people's souls and spread spiritual diseases. So you can obviously see the comparison between false teachers and wild dogs. Beware of the dogs. And then he says, beware or look out for the evildoers. To whom was Paul referring when he was talking about evildoers? Well, he's talking about the same group. Legalists who remove, this is important here, okay? Who remove the focus from Jesus' work at Calvary to our meritorious works, thinking that by those works we can be saved or stay saved. All right, so I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia who sadly had allowed these guys to come in and sadly had some of this church family had bought into this legalism. Listen to the words of Paul to these Christians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? I want to ask you guys the same question this morning. Did you guys receive the Holy Spirit because you kept a legal list of religious rules and one day he came inside of you because you're so good and you're so special? Yes or no? No. I know how you received the Holy Spirit the same way the Galatians uh, did and the same way all true born-again Christians have for the last 2,000 years. It's by, quote, the hearing with faith. He says in verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected or completed by the flesh? And so listen, it's evil to get people's eyes off the work of Jesus at Calvary and put on some legalistic trip that they gotta do meritorious works to be saved or even to stay saved, why? Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. That's why, and you gotta get that. You gotta get that and you gotta believe it with all your heart before you can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was reading this, um, this past week about a lady who came to a pastor And she's like, Pastor, no, no, no. Salvation is is faith plus works. That's how we're saved. It's kinda like in a canoe. If you just got one oar, you're just gonna go round and round and round in circles. So it takes two oars, faith plus meritorious works. And that's how you can make progress, Pastor. And the pastor looked at her and just shook his head and said, Ma'am, here's the problem with your theory. None of us are going to heaven in a canoe and at the end of that river, there's a waterfall. So you need to turn around. (laughs) Right, it's so true. We gotta get this, right? And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because the vast majority of Americans believe in what I call American folk religion. I hope I'm good enough, and maybe I'll earn it. Eh, Wrong answer. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators. To whom was Paul referring when he said mutilators? Bottom of the screen, the legalists who performed circumcision on Gentile Christians for religious reasons. Let's talk about circumcision for just a moment. For Old Testament Jews, as well as all Jews throughout history, Circumcision is that surgical procedure that removes the foreskin from that certain part of the male anatomy, and it acted as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. So when a Hebrew couple had a boy, they would circumcise that boy on the eighth day, just as Abraham circumcised Isaac on the eighth day, and that circumcision became the outward sign, the outward mark, for that boy as he was identifying with God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. Now if you're listening, say amen here. It's one thing for a Jew to be circumcised as part of their cultural heritage. That's great. It's one thing for a parent to circumcise their son for health reasons. That's great. It's a whole other thing to tell anybody, Jew or Gentile, that in addition to faith in Christ, they have to be circumcised to be saved. That's not great, that's evil. And the reason it's evil is because it messes with the gospel of grace. And if anybody goes along with that procedure for salvation, thinking this is gonna save me, the procedure only mutilates them, it does not save them. Now, if you're still listening, say amen here. Amen. Religious rituals cannot save us. And that's so important, I'm gonna say it again religious rituals. I don't care if you're talking about circumcision. I don't care if you're talking about baptism. I don't care if you're talking about communion. Religious rituals do not save. We do not get baptized and we do not receive communion in order to be saved. We get baptized and we receive communion because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't mess with the gospel of grace. He goes on and he says now in verse three, he says, for we, speaking to the church at Philippi, a church just like us, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ. Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so as born again followers of Christ, our circumcision, ladies and gentlemen, is a circumcision of the heart. Romans chapter two, verses 11 and 12, you can read it later. What does that mean? That means we're not trusting in a religious ritual. And so again, our faith is not in any religious ritual. Our faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's where it's at, and that finished work is symbolized by baptism. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Romans in chapter six, verse three and four. He says, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And so baptism is an outward symbol of something that's already happened in our hearts, that inward change. And at Calvary PSL, we don't sprinkle and we don't pour. We dunk you. You say, why? Because it symbolizes being baptized with Jesus in his death and burial. And this is why sometimes you hear the old time preachers, which I love, right, when they baptize somebody, buried in the likeness of his death under the waters. You can only do that through immersion. Raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what the symbol is. It's a public identification of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so church family, you know the word, help me out. If you have not been baptized since you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, sign up, get dunked. We would love to dunk you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first, next uh, baptism is September the 2nd. Right over here, we'll have the dunk pool ready to go. And we would love for you to be baptized. And the way you do that is you go to calvarypsl.com, you click on next steps, you scroll down to get baptized and you sign up and a member of Pastor Andrew's team will give you a call. But look at verse three again. I don't wanna rush past verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, since Christ has made us spiritually alive, this is what we do. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Just as Jesus taught the woman at the well in John chapter four. He's made us alive. We can do that now. And not only that, we glory in Christ Jesus. That means that we glory in the Son and his righteousness, not in our own self-righteousness. And not only that, but listen, we have no confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? That means that we don't have a legal list of religious, religious rules that we try to, in our own strength, keep this to impress God. No, there is none of that in true Christianity. What do we do? We surrender the Holy Spirit, he fills us, and then he produces his fruit through us. And the next thing you know, as I said last week, we're like that moon reflecting the light of Christ, and love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and meekness, and self-control, is just flowing out of us. And so now, we go to verse four. He says also, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's like, you wanna talk about being confident in the flesh? All right. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. And so here we have a legal list of Paul's works righteousness. Okay, and so this is the self-life, the self-life. Secular people have their version of the self-life. This is a religious guy's version of the self-life. And it's all about things that he gloried in. Again, I want you to think about Saul of Tarsus rode to Damascus riding on his high horse, right? Of, of self-righteousness. He says, circumcise the eighth day. And so Saul would say in his BC days, hey, guess what? I identify with Abraham and his covenant that God made with him, and I've got the physical mark to prove it. And I'm a true Israelite. That means I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have Hebrew blood running through my veins. And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. There's lots of things that Paul could be thinking here I wonder if he was thinking about the the tribe of Benjamin during the split of the kingdom. If you guys have been studying your Old Testament, you know that there was David and there was Solomon and then there was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the king, um, in his day, um, there was a split, 10 tribes apostatized. That means not a good thing. They went um, and worshiped falsely, but the majority of the tribe of Benjamin stuck with Judah and they were true to the religion and they worshiped in Jerusalem and Saul of Tarsus would say, I'm true to my religion. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My parents were Hebrews. And not only that, um, they, they raised me to learn the Torah. Not only that, when I was old enough, probably 13, they sent me to sit at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. And I was a strict Pharisee, literally the separated ones. That means that I kept the law of Moses outwardly. And not only that, I kept the tradition of the elders. And I persecuted the church. I've already talked to you guys about that. And I'm outwardly religious. I cross every religious T, I dot every religious I. What is all of it? It's all self-exaltation. You guys see it? It's all self. Again, secular people have their version of the self-life, Religious people have their version of the self-life, but both are wrong. It's exalting in your position, exalting in your power, exalting in your prestige and wanting everybody to look at you. And so religiously speaking, the self-focused life is all about self-righteousness. And that takes us back to our big idea for the day, Maybe you want to write it down. Maybe you want to take a picture. Self-righteousness, ladies and gentlemen, blocks. Can you guys shout out the word blocks? Blocks. It blocks people from knowing Jesus. But faith righteousness opens the door to a personal relationship with him. And that's what Saul of Tarsus experienced on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine when he had his grace awakening and met the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we move on. To verse seven. So after talking about all those self-righteous things and his meritorious identity and meritorious works in verses five and six, he says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so before Saul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, In his B.C. days, he thought that all of his self-righteous identity and self-righteous works caused him to have gain in the eyes of God. But here's the truth. All of that self-righteous identity and all that self-righteous works didn't do one thing to move him one inch closer to either the Lord or to heaven, and so he knew this stuff's blocking me from knowing Jesus. And so what did he do? He said, I count it all as loss, and he let it go. He elaborates in verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, here it is, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, what does your version say? Just shout it out. Rubbish. Rubbish. Does anybody have a version that says dung? Yeah. In order that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying, all my self-righteous efforts to earn God's acceptance stood in the way. It blocked me from knowing Jesus. So like the trash, I took it out. See ya. He says now in verse nine, and be found in him. Now, I gotta slow down here, because this is one of those crucial, crucial verses that so helps to define the true gospel of grace. So we're on sacred ground, people. Verse nine, right, in fact, if you're looking at verse nine, can you say amen here? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through what in who? Go ahead. Faith in Christ, Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so that leads you to your next point, which I love. Paul took off the stained and tattered robe of self righteousness, and he received the beautiful, perfect robe of faith righteousness. What does that mean? Well, so often, right, religious people come and they stand before God with their self-righteous robe on. And they're like, hey, God, look at me. You know, aren't you impressed? And what they don't realize is that their self-righteous robe is stained and it's torn and tattered, right, and it stinks to high heaven. But how many of you guys believe that God is not willing that anybody should perish? And so what does God do? Right, as Pastor Andrew talked about, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. And so what does God do? He basically says, you're not coming into heaven looking or smelling like that. I got something better for you. And so in his kindness, as he did for Paul, he shows us our sin and our need for a savior. Now listen, you cannot skip this part of the gospel. The gospel has bad news and the gospel has good news. We wanna just rush to the good news. We don't ever wanna talk about hell in the church anymore. In fact, there's pastors who will never say the word hell for their whole ministry because it makes people uncomfortable. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And you can't be saved till you realize you're lost. And the wages of sin is what? So what does the Lord do? He opens our eyes so that we can see how stinky and how torn and how stained our self-righteous robe is. And what does he do? He takes us to the foot of the cross. And so right now, everybody here and everybody watching, I want you to imagine a big cross right here on the stage and imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he's hanging on the cross, he's bleeding out for your salvation. And you and I walk up to the foot of the cross with our self-righteous robe on. And as you're thinking about that image right now in your mind, I want you to listen to the word of God, Paul to the Galatians. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, if you and I could be saved by keeping a list or being good enough, then Jesus died in vain. That's what the word of God says, Galatians 3, verse 3. And so listen, when Jesus Christ was on his face in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, what did he cry out? He cried out, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Jesus did not want to go to the cross, at that moment at least. Take this cup from me. And then he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Now, let me ask you a question. You can answer out loud, yes or no. Did the Father take the cup away from Jesus? No, why? Because there's no other way for us to be saved than through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for our sins. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross And again, put that image in your mind. There he is, and there we are, walking up with our self-righteous robe, and as he's hanging on the cross, he whispers to you and to me, take it off. And at that moment, you and I have a choice. We can either get offended because we like our robe, thank you very much, Or we can turn from our sins the best way we know how in repentance and we can shed that stinky, torn, smelly robe and we can realize that Jesus Christ is my only hope and receive him and him alone as our savior and the Lord of our lives. That's the gospel. And when we do that, what does the Father do? Because he loves us so much. He clothes us in his righteousness, Christ's righteousness. He gives us that perfect and beautiful robe. It's called the great exchange. Paul put it like this, he says, for our sake. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, the substitutionary death of Christ is an essential doctrine of the faith of Christianity. It's for our sake. He made him, that's the father made the son, to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of who? God, clothes in that righteous robe of Christ's righteousness. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about my righteousness. Take that robe off. It's about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then, as I said last week, when the Father looks down at us positionally, He sees the righteousness of his son, and that is the only reason we are accepted by a holy God. It's called grace. Jesus Christ on the cross, the sacrifice, absorbing the wrath of God so we would not have to absorb the wrath of God in hell. And so why is all this important? Last two verses, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him. That's where it's at. It's a relationship with Jesus. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Anybody want resurrection power for life? To live the victorious Christian life? This is the recipe right here. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul would say, hey church at Philippi, he'd say, hey church at Port St. Lucie, Florida. This is how I know him. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That opens the door to the personal relationship. And this is how I receive resurrection power to live the victorious Christian life because I receive power and you can receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That's when he gives us that supernatural power to live for him. And by the way, someone says, aren't good works necessary, aren't they important? Listen, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but then the Holy Spirit empowers you and I for a life of works, and what are those works? They're a big thank you, Lord, with an attitude of gratitude for all that you've done for me. And so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings because here's what I know. If any of you decide I'm gonna become open with my faith and I'm gonna begin to follow Jesus openly, there's gonna be people who write you off. There's gonna be people who don't like you. They're gonna avoid you. Some may even get violent with you. And so the thing is, if we live for Jesus, there's gonna be people who come against us. And so we have, to, we have to die to ourselves and become like Christ in his death. And then Paul would say, I look forward to the day when my faith is gonna be turned to sight and I'm gonna rise out from the corpses on resurrection day. So I'm gonna leave you with one final illustration as the ministry team comes forward. Okay, so stay with me to the end here. I want you guys to imagine two men, and they're out on the Atlantic Ocean, and they're fishing. And let's say they're five miles out, and there they are, and a big storm comes, capsizes their boat, washes away anything they could hold onto, and now you have two guys five miles off the coast of Florida, and they're just there swimming. Not a good situation. And now I want you to picture in your mind's eye, there's a boat on the horizon. It's coming closer and closer. And driving the boat, there's a man. He's got a white robe and shoulder length brown hair. I think you know what I'm talking about here. And he's like, I'm here to rescue you guys. And one of the guys out there says, no, it's okay. You see, I was voted best swimmer in my high school, and so I'm just gonna swim on to shore. But the other guy knows there's no way. The guy in the boat is my only hope. Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? He throws the life preserver to whoever is willing. The other guy is not willing. What does he do? He swims, he gets four miles. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? But then he drowns. Who got saved? The one who realized, I can't earn it. I can't make it. I need Jesus.